Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So once while I was in college in Boston, I went to a Red Sox game at Fenway Park. My friends and I were sitting way up in the cheap seats, and the crowd up there was pretty animated. So there were frequent cheers that said not very nice things about the New York Yankees, things that I will not repeat from the pulpit. <laughs> and eventually I turned to my friends I was there with and I said, I don't, I don't get it. Why are they cheering against the Yankees? We're not even playing the Yankees. <laughs> See, I was an innocent girl from Atlanta. And uh, to whatever extent I was a baseball fan, I was a Braves fan. I was a National League person. So I didn't know about this legendary rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees. A rivalry that is so intense that it doesn't really matter how well your team is doing as long as the other team is doing worse. It is a rivalry so fundamental that Sox fans cheer against the Yankees even when they're not playing the Yankees. And that's what I think of when I hear Jesus tell this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both of these men had gone to the temple to pray. And this is what the Pharisee prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. If the Pharisee had been from Boston, he probably would have said, thank you, I am not a Yankees fan. Because the people that the Pharisee thanked God that he wasn't like, that list was not a very good list, or at least it wasn't a list of very good people. Extortioners, people who are unjust, people who commit adultery, people who are tax collectors, which means they basically cheat people out of money for a living. The Pharisee was thanking God that he wasn't like those bad people, which pretty much implies that the Pharisee thought that he was a good person. But that isn't actually the Pharisee's real problem. The real problem isn't that he thinks he is a good person. The real problem is he thinks he is a better person. The Pharisee focuses on the differences between himself and others. He attaches value to those differences. And he is happy to rest in his own sense of superiority. So happy, in fact, that it seems the only reason he went to the temple was just to brag to God about himself. The tax collector, meanwhile, is standing over on the other side of the temple, beating his breast in grief because he knows what a sinner he is. But the Pharisee smugly pats himself on the back, content in his own sense of superiority. Now, there are any number of problems with the Pharisee's sense of superiority over people who are bad and thus different from him. But one of the problems is that a feeling of superiority itself is usually a pretty good indication that the person feeling that superiority isn't quite telling themselves the truth. Because superiority rests on comparison, right? 
But people who are really secure in themselves, people who are secure about who they are and what their value is, those people feel the need to compare themselves to others. They're happy to be who they are, to let other people be who they are, and everybody can just go on about their way. People who need to feel superior to others aren't secure in themselves. They're not able to just let difference be difference. They have to believe that the way they are different makes them better. In other words, I only have to make myself feel superior to someone else if somehow I feel threatened by that person. I make myself feel superior to somebody else because I am afraid of that person or at least afraid of what the difference between us means about me. So to use my silly baseball analogy, if I'm a Red Sox fan, I only need to feel superior to a Yankees fan if I'm going to end up feeling stupid for backing the wrong team if the Yankees do well and the Sox do badly. All of that is to say that anywhere there is a sense of superiority to others, there is also probably a fear of others. That fear might be big or small. It might be conscious or unconscious. Most of the time, it's probably unconscious. But whenever we find ourselves feeling better than people who are different from us, it's probably because somewhere, at some level, we feel afraid of people who are different from us, or at least afraid of what we think that difference means about us. But if God intends for his children to live unafraid, which is what we're talking about in this sermon series this month and next, if God intends for his children to live unafraid, then what do we do about this fear of people who are different from us? This fear of the other, with a capital O. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning And what I think our passages from Genesis and Acts will help us to see more clearly. But before we turn to those scriptures, before we look at what God's antidote is to our fear of the other, we need to be able to take a good, hard look at ourselves. We need to be able to see where or how we are afraid of people who are different from us. And that is not easy to do. Because fearing people who are different from us, I think is one of the things that in our culture is considered the most socially unacceptable. It is not socially okay to admit that we are prejudiced or that we are afraid of people who are other. And so we hide whatever fear we may have from pretty much everybody, including ourselves. But just because we hide the fear doesn't mean it's not there. And until we face the fear, we can't be freed from it. We need to acknowledge our fear of the other so that God can help us to live unafraid. So let's think for a moment about some of the differences that we are aware of that we may find ourselves feeling superior about, however big or little. 
So take the world of technology. There are Mac people, and there are PC people. There are iPhone people, and there are Android people. As someone who is firmly team Mac, I will admit that on some level, I am convinced that all of you PC people really need to see the light and come over to the better side. <laughs> and now I suspect that at coffee hour, some of you will tell me how wrong I am about that. <laughs> or think about generational differences. So criticizing millennials is pretty standard practice for baby boomers and Gen Xers like me. Millennials get criticized for being immature, entitled, overly sensitive. They get called snowflakes. But what if those criticisms are actually just masking fears? Like maybe the fear that millennials' tech savvy will make us obsolete in the workplace. Or maybe the fear that their insistence on a better work-life balance will make us face whatever regrets we might have about having prioritized our careers over our families. The superiority that one generation feels over another generation probably has more to do with our fear of what those differences show us about ourselves than they do about the other person. And then there are touchier differences, ones that it's not really socially acceptable to admit. Things like differences of culture, ethnicity, and language. So maybe those of us who are native English speakers, maybe we have found ourselves frustrated when we're on a customer service call with an employee whose native language is not English. We just want our bank or our cable company to employ people who we can understand. But that means that without really realizing it, we're actually looking down on the customer service representative who doesn't speak English well enough, even though they probably speak English better than we speak any other language. Is it that we fear the person on the other end of the phone call? Not really. But it may be that what we're afraid of is changes in our society. Changes that mean everything in our culture is no longer built around making life as comfortable and as easy as possible for people who look and sound like us. And we cannot have a conversation about fear of the other in this country without talking about racism. It's what many people have called America's original sin. Racism is the ultimate taboo for most white folks in America. It is the thing that it is most shameful to admit. But I don't think that anyone can grow up white in this country and not have absorbed at least some amount of racist thoughts or feelings because it is the air that we breathe. Austin Channing Brown is a black Christian author and speaker and in her book, I'm Still Here, she tells a story that illustrates this really well. In one chapter of the book, she's writing about a year that she spent working with a short-term missions organization in a black neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. The organization would host youth groups for a week at a time, 
But rather than sending the kids out to do work in the community, what they do is send the kids out to show them the work that was already being done in the community by the community so that they could see how black neighbors were helping other black neighbors free themselves from the struggles of urban poverty. So Brown writes about one group of youth who had spent the week there, and they had gone to a home for a group home for teenage boys. And the boys kept a garden outside their home so that they could supplement the food that was given with uh, what they had grown, fresh produce. So the youth from this group spent a day working with the boys in the garden, and then the boys taught them how to make a dish using the stuff that they had grown. And then Brown describes the debrief conversation that she was having with the youth after their visit. She writes this. As they told me how it went, one girl spoke up. I had a really good time working alongside the guys, but my biggest lesson came after we left. She then recounted how upon their leaving, some of the guys from the home followed them out the door on their way to work. The girl's father, who was accompanying the group, asked his daughter to turn around. What would you think of those guys if you hadn't just spent the afternoon with them? It only took her a moment to tell the truth. I would have looked at their skin color and their tattoos, the way they dress and their playfulness, and assumed they were gang members. She paused for a moment, then declared, I realize today that I can be racist. As I read that story, I so appreciated this girl's courage in discovering and admitting her own racism. My guess is that before she went on that trip, she would have said she wasn't racist. But her father's question helped her acknowledge her unconscious fear of the other, a fear that was based only on differences in appearance, dress, tattoos, skin color. I know I have had experiences that have made me confront my own racism, my own fear of people who are of a different race than I am. They are not comfortable moments. They are not moments I am proud of, but they are real. And I am convinced that it is only when I acknowledge and confess my fear of the other that God can begin to free me from it. And we need to be freed from it. From whatever fear of the other it is that lurks in our hearts. Because when we fear the other, the consequences are terrible. When we fear the other, we dehumanize other people, we diminish ourselves, and we distance ourselves from God. So when we fear other people just because they're different from us, we dehumanize them. Even if it's only in our thoughts, we treat them as less than fully human. All of us. Every single human who has ever lived, who is living now, who will ever live, all of us are made in the image of God. What makes humans unique among all of creation is that we bear the image of our creator. 
But when we fear people who are different from us, when we fear them because of the differences in the way God has created us, then we are scoffing at the image of God in them. And if we do that, we are treating them as less than they deserve as the divine image bearers that they are. When we fear others because they are different from us, we dehumanize them. But fearing the other doesn't just harm them. It also harms us. It diminishes us. Because we are created by a God who loves diversity. So when we can't enjoy diversity, when we can't enjoy difference, then we are cutting ourselves off from the abundance that God has created and that God has intended for us to enjoy. This is so much of what we see in the creation account in the first chapters of Genesis So think about the third day of creation, for example. That is the day when God creates plants. So think about plants. Think specifically about trees. I am no arborist, but I am going to guess that God could have created five or ten different kinds of trees, and that would have been enough, right? A few deciduous, a few conifers, a couple different kinds of fruit. God could call it a day. But he didn't. You want to know how many species of trees there are? Over 60,000. 60,000. God is a God who delights in diversity and difference. But it's not just in trees that God values difference. It's in us humans, too. That's what we see in the passage from Genesis 2 that we read earlier. At this point, God has created the first human, man, Adam. But God sees that it is not good that Adam is alone. So far, God has decreed that everything he has created has been good. But on this, the last day of God's creative work, for the first time, he says that something is not good. It is not good that the man is alone. So what does God do? Does he create another man so Adam can have a buddy, a pal? No, what God does is he creates a woman, Eve. When God sees that Adam is alone, God creates someone who is different from Adam. Adam and Eve are alike in that they are both human, they both bear the image of God, but they are different in that one is male and one is female. So difference, diversity, is an intentional, beautiful, God-ordained part of what it means to be human. When we fear those who are different from us, we don't just dehumanize them, but we diminish ourselves and our experience of God's creation and intention for us. And finally, when we fear those who are other than us, We distance ourselves from God. That's the lesson that New Testament scholar David Lose draws from Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lose writes, Anytime you draw a line between who's in and who's out, this parable suggests, 
you will find God on the other side. When we distance ourselves from those who are different from us, we also distance ourselves from God. Because over and over and over throughout Scripture, God chooses to stand on the side of the other, of the ones who are excluded or marginalized or don't belong. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us, we who all too often find that our feelings of superiority to others really reveal our fear of them? What do we do if we want to live unafraid of the other? This is where our passage from Acts brings me so much hope. Because this passage paints a picture of how we, both as individuals and as a congregation and as the church as a whole, how we can confront our fear of the other and by God's grace be freed to live unafraid. But before we pick up in Acts chapter 11, we need a little bit of background. So in the previous chapter, Peter was in the city of Joppa and he had a vision. He had a vision of what was something like a sheet being lowered down from the sky, and it was filled with all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles. And in this vision, Peter hears a voice saying to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And this is really upsetting to Peter, because he had always kept the Jewish dietary laws around clean and unclean food, and some of the animals on this sheet were unclean. And so Peter refused to eat of the unclean animals on the sheet. But then Peter hears a voice again. What God has made clean, do not call common. Or as the NIV translation puts it, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then this entire vision repeats itself two more times. At which point... Gentile visitors arrive to see Peter, and the Spirit prompts him to go with them. They lead him to the home of Cornelius, who is a Roman, who is to say a Gentile, who is to say a not a Jew. And this was not something that a good Jewish boy like Peter would do, to go to the home of a Gentile. But remembering this vision that he had just had, <laughs> Peter went And he preached to those in Cornelius' home about the forgiveness of sins. And as he's preaching, Peter sees God do something that he never, ever thought he would see. God poured out his Holy Spirit on this group of people who were different from Peter. This group who were other. God gave them the same spiritual gifts that God had given to all the Jews who had believed in and followed Jesus. And recognizing what God had just done, Peter baptized all of those Gentiles. See, Peter allowed God's spirit to free him from his fear of those who were different from him. Peter allowed God to free him from his fear of the other. And word of this spread fast. So 
Peter goes back to Jerusalem and all of the Jewish believers are there and they have heard what Peter has done for the Gentiles and they are scandalized. And this is where we pick up in today's reading at the start of chapter 11. Because here what the Jewish Christian leaders are doing is calling Peter to task. They demand that he account for what he did with Cornelius. And so Peter tells the whole story in detail. He talks about the vision that God gave him. The vision that showed him that he'd been afraid to share the work of the Holy Spirit with Gentiles. Peter testifies to his fellow Jewish Christians about how he had been wrong. And about God, how God had freed him from his fear of those who were different from him. Peter says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? But here's the part of the story that I find really remarkable, which is the way that those Jerusalem believers respond to Peter. Because they don't resist him. They don't argue against him, tell him all the ways he's gotten it wrong. They also don't beat themselves up over how they have gotten it wrong. Instead, the text tells us, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. These Jewish believers glorified God. They saw the error of their ways. They saw the way that their fear of those who were different from them had led them to want to exclude the Gentiles from the work of God. And then they turned their back on those fears, and instead they chose to rejoice in what God was doing and bringing Gentiles as well as Jews into the life that comes through repentance and faith. And what Peter did, and what those believers in Jerusalem did, we can do that too. When God shows us how we resist people who are different from us, how we might fear them or feel superior to them out of fear, When God convicts us of our fear of the other, we can repent. We can acknowledge and confess our wrong, and we can receive God's forgiveness, his full, complete, total forgiveness. And then we can ask God to give us the grace to see as he sees to see that what God has made clean, we should not call impure. And above all, we can also marvel and rejoice in the depth and the breadth of God's love that embraces all of us, not just despite, but actually because of our differences. The kingdom of God is full of difference. Because that is how God created us. And because Jesus has proclaimed that the kingdom of God has drawn near, then we get to live and rejoice in those differences of God's kingdom even now. 
We are invited to live into, to help build a kingdom that is not about keeping people out, but about inviting them in. A kingdom where walls are torn down, where divisions are erased, and where all have a seat at the table. A kingdom where all, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, Yankees and Red Sox, where all of us can live free and unafraid. May it be so. Amen.